Turn to Exodus chapter 3, the verses that we read not long ago. Exodus chapter 3, verse 13 through to verse 15. I am that I am. That's the title of my sermon, I am that I am. We're going to continue to look at Moses, and as we do so, we shall consider the name that God gave to him. I am that I am. Let's have a look at verses 13 and 14 of chapter 3. And Moses said unto God, Behold, when I come unto the children of Israel, and shall say unto them, The God of your fathers have sent me unto you, and they shall say to me, What is his name? What shall I say unto them? And God said unto Moses, I am that I am. And he said, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am, have sent me unto you. In verse 6, God had already said to Moses, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. I feel as if I know this uh, word perfect now because we've seen it. I've, I've read it so many times and we're going to see it again today. And and last week I went into quite some detail of what it, what it actually means that God is the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And we're going to look at that again a little bit later. Even so, Moses asked God for a name to give to the Israelites, despite already being told in verse 6, I am the God of thy father, so on. As to why Moses asked God for a name, various reasons have been suggested, such as the Israelites had become accustomed to the Egyptians having all their gods, and of course all their gods had names. And we can see here in our, in our, in our passage, in verse 13, Moses said unto God, Behold, when I come unto the children of Israel and shall say unto them, The God of your fathers have sent me unto you, and they shall say to me, what is his name? See, this is probably their mentality. They're so used to all these different gods with different names. That's not to say the Israelites didn't cry out to the one true God. They cried out to God. God heard their cries. He saw their affliction. And so we read of God appointing Moses to bring deliverance to the Israelites, to lead them out of captivity out of slavery in Egypt also perhaps Moses was not convinced that the Israelites would believe that God had sent him and you can understand if that was the case just look at what he said in chapter 4 and verse 1 Moses answered and said but behold they will not believe me nor hearken unto my voice for they will say, the Lord have not appeared unto thee. Most probably, Moses still had memories of 40 years earlier. 40 years is a long time, but there's something that I don't suppose he'd forgotten. That is when he was um, a prince of Egypt, and the Lord had laid it on his heart to go and see his Hebrew brethren. And so he went out to see the Israelites, and he saw an Egyptian badly treating or beating 
one of the Hebrews. And so he killed the Egyptian. And then the very next day, Moses went out again to see his Hebrew brethren, remembering that Moses was himself uh, a Hebrew by birth. Anyway, he went out and he saw two of the Hebrews fighting one another. And the one who was causing the problems, the one who was causing the problems, um, said to him, who made you a prince and a judge over us? As such, Moses probably figured that he would have a job convincing the Hebrews that none other than God had made him a prince and a judge over them. None other than God had appointed him and sent him to the Israelites. Anyway, in response to Moses' question, it is written in verse 14, God said unto Moses, I am that I am. And he said, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am have sent me unto you. Look at that response there. God said, I am that I am. The Egyptians, they had their various gods, such as Ra, the sun god, and Sobek, who was apparently the crocodile god. How different all those names are to the name of the only true God, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, who has declared himself to be, I am. Even before we consider to consider that name, which is actually a verb, you can see that, can't you? I am is a verb to be. Does it fill you with awe? Because I tell you, I feel barely able, barely qualified with my finite little mind and my tiny understanding to even begin to scratch beneath the surface of what that name means. It's actually very easy to write uh, a long, long sermon about this. And don't worry, I haven't done that. It is actually quite easy. But to actually begin to scratch beneath the surface of what God said there in that verse, in verse 14. God said unto Moses, I am that I am. And what that conveys about an infinite God, a God who on the first day of creation said, let there be light, and there was light. God who upholds all things, and that includes you, and it includes me. And he upholds us by the word of his power. The God who is eternal, self-existent, unchanging. The God who is the same yesterday, today and forevermore. All of that is is encapsulated in those words, I am that I am. And so much more about God. How does one even begin to start? to explain such things. Closely related to the name I am in verse 14 is the name Lord in verse 15. Have a look at that. The name that we probably said many, many times ourselves. Verse 15 there. And God said moreover unto Moses, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, The Lord... God of your fathers, and my, I'm trying to put a bit of emphasis on Lord there. The Lord God of your fathers. 
the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob have sent me unto you. This is my name forever and this is my memorial unto all generations. So in verse 14, God says to Moses, I am. And then in verse 15, he uh, he goes by the name of the Lord. Capital letters there, can you see that? Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That's our English translation, of course. That's not the original Hebrew. Uh, the original Hebrew, it's just some consonants. Y-H-W-H, reading from right to left. I don't want to get too complicated with this because I'll confuse you and I'll confuse myself. But reading right to left, Y-H-W-H, and it's left to a... Uh, it's been left to the scholars throughout history to figure out what the vowels would be that go, uh, uh, that fit with those consonants. And anyway, what we have as Lord with capital letters there in verse 15, uh, is variously thought to be Yahweh uh, or Jehovah. Well, let's stick to Lord for now with the capital letters. Lord is the covenantal name that God is known by to all his peculiar or special people. Lord, Jehovah or Yahweh. When God gave the Ten Commandments to Moses and the Israelites, he said, I am the Lord, capital letters, I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt out of the house of bondage. So that's at the very beginning when God um, presented the Ten Commandments to Moses. He declared himself to be the Lord. Lord thy God, with the capital letters again. We see the covenantal aspect of the name Lord in verse 15, where God said to Moses, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, the Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. This Lord was in, was in covenant with the Israelites of old. And he is in covenant with you, with me, whoever belongs to him through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we know him as Lord. The Jews of old considered the name Lord to be so holy that they dared not even utter it for fear of taking the name of the Lord in vain. Instead, they substituted Adonai for it. Adonai in our English Bibles is Lord with, um, without the capital letters. Adonai. They substituted Lord with lowercase and we can see that in chapter 4 verse 10. Look at chapter 4 and verse 10 where we actually have and Moses said unto the Lord Yahweh that is O my Lord see the, the, the lowercase letters now so Moses said unto Yahweh O my Lord Adonai I am not eloquent and so on but the Jews when they proclaimed the name of God they would call him Adonai they, they dared not use that covenantal name that we see in um, verse 15, chapter 3 and verse 15. So, what does this tell us, whether we're looking at 
God saying, I am that I am in verse 14? Or declaring himself to be Lord, the covenantal God um, in in verse 15 there? It must surely mean that he is eternal. I am that I am speaks of him being the eternal God. As it is written in Psalm 90 and verse 2, before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. And in 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 17, it is written, now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honour and glory forever and ever. Amen. For one thing, what that means, God being eternal, what does that actually mean for us? It means that God is not bound by time. After all, he created time along with everything else. With Yahweh, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. You, however, have no control at all over time. You can take the battery out of your clock. You can do various things to yourself to make yourself look a little bit younger. You can hide the wrinkles and colour your hair and all the rest of it. But you cannot alter the fact that the time will come when you will die and you will meet your maker, Yahweh, the one who declares himself to be, I am. And when that happens, you will have to give an account of your life to him. As it is written, it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this, the judgment. God is not only internal, he is unchanging in his love. I don't know about you, but I'm greatly comforted by the knowledge that the Lord is unchanging in his love. If you are a Christian, why is that? Why are you a Christian? Well, on one level, you you heard at Sunday school about Jesus or or whatever it is. Maybe your mum, your dad taught you about Jesus and you became a Christian. Yeah. But ultimately, if you are a Christian, it is because Jehovah God, who has loved you with an everlasting love, drew you with loving kindness to Jesus. Since God's love for you is an everlasting love, it is not a fickle love that is here today and gone tomorrow. We all know something about that, don't we? The love of God is an unchanging love and not dependent upon you doing anything to merit his love. In fact, God has loved you with an everlasting love despite your failings, despite your sin, despite your depravity. It is a Calvary love, as it is written in Romans chapter 5 and verse 8. God commendeth his love towards us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The love of God is for you 
is one that is from everlasting to everlasting, an unchanging love if you belong to Jesus. That's why you're a Christian. Not only is God eternal, not only is his love unchanging, but so too is his purpose unchanging. His purpose is unchanging. With all the best intentions, we can make plans, we can make promises, and more often than not, what happens? They come to nothing for various reasons, whether it's our fault or someone else's fault. However, the Lord, or Yahweh, is unchanging in his eternal decrees and in the promises that flow from those eternal decrees. Obviously, the eternal decrees come first. And then the various promises that we see in the Bible, the various prophecies that we see in the Old Testament, they all flow from God's eternal decrees. And you can be sure that those eternal decrees will come to pass. As it is written in Malachi chapter 3 and verse 6, I am the Lord, I change not. For example, about 400 years before Moses, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said unto him, Unto thy seed will I give this land. We looked at this last week, I know. Unto thy seed I will give this land. Now, as we see today, God has appointed Moses to lead the Israelites out of Egypt. Thereafter, they would spend 40 years wandering in the wilderness before finally entering the promised land of Canaan, that land which is flowing with milk and honey. Furthermore, the ultimate fulfillment of that promise to Abraham and to his seed can be seen in Jesus who is the seed of Abraham. By his death and resurrection, all who trust in him for the forgiveness of their sins receive from God not a strip of land in the Middle East, but they receive a heavenly inheritance. The promises that were made to Abraham and which have their fulfilment in Jesus were made by the Lord, Jehovah God, who chose Jesus when? before the foundation of the world, to be the sacrificial lamb slain for sinners. Do you appreciate that? Jesus was chosen by God before the foundation of the world to be the lamb of God. When he came into the world, John the Baptist heralded his coming with the words, Behold the lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the world. And he came in fulfilment of prophecy and that prophecy was in fulfilment or flowed from God's eternal decree. In other words, God didn't just come up with a plan to save Israel and to give them or to save them from the Egyptians and to give them the land of Canaan when he heard their cries and when he saw their afflictions. He didn't just think, oh, I better do something about this. Now what can I do? I know, I'll give them Canaan. It doesn't work like that with God. Neither did God just suddenly work out a plan to save sinners at the time when Jesus was born of a virgin in Bethlehem. 
those plans all have their origin before the creation of the world and they all proceed from the eternal God whose decrees are unchanging because he is unchanging and he is eternal. The outworking of those decrees, those unchanging decrees can be seen throughout history and I've got a couple of examples for you here. I find them fascinating. I hope you do as well. First one, if you want to go to it, I'm going to read it anyway, but you might like to read along as I'm reading it. If you keep your finger in Exodus chapter 3 and turn to 2 Kings chapter 20, I'll I'll give you a, a minute to find that one. 2 Kings chapter 20. While you're looking for it, 2 Kings 20, let me just remind you, I want to show to you how God's Eternal, unchanging decrees are worked out during the process of history, the process of time, as time goes on. 2 Kings chapter 20, I'm going to read from verse 1 to 6. And to give you a date here, it's about 700 years BC, okay? 700 years or thereabouts BC. In those days was Hezekiah sick unto death. Hezekiah was the king of Judah. And the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos, came to him and said unto him, Thus saith the Lord, thus saith Jehovah, you can see its capital letters there, Set thine house in order, for thou shalt die and not live. Then he turned his face to the wall and prayed unto the Lord, saying, I beseech thee, O Lord, remember now how I have walked before thee in truth and with a perfect heart and have done that which is good in thy sight. And Hezekiah wept sore. And it came to pass, afore Isaiah was gone out into the middle court, so that's pretty quickly, that the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Turn again. And tell Hezekiah, the captain of my people, Thus saith the Lord, the God of David thy father, I have heard thy prayer, I have seen thy tears, behold, I will heal thee on the third day, thou shalt go up unto the house of the Lord. Okay, that's that, and and verse 6, And I will add unto thy days fifteen years, and I will deliver thee and this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria, and I will defend this city for mine own sake, and for my servant David's sake. I, I've read it a few times, so, you know, you'd have to read it a few times yourself. But, okay, verse 6 there, I will add unto thy days 15 years, and so on. Let's remind ourselves what... King Hezekiah had been crying out to God about. Look back at verse 1 again. In those days was Hezekiah sick unto death. And the prophet Isaiah the son of Amos came to him and said unto him, Thus saith the Lord, set thine house in order, for thou shalt die and not live. What a difference between verse 1 and verse 6. What's going on there? I mean, you you take it as it is there. Take it at face value. Hezekiah was sick unto death. He cried out to the Lord, to Jehovah God. Jehovah God heard his cry and granted him another 15 years of life. 
And we see there in verse 6, during that time that uh, he would deliver, the Lord would deliver um, Hezekiah and the city of Jerusalem out of the hand of the king of Assyria. But what I want to turn you to now is the last verse in chapter 20 and the first verse in chapter 21. And Hezekiah slept with his fathers and Manasseh, his son, reigned in his stead. Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign. Right, do your maths there. Figure it out for yourselves. How much time was Hezekiah, King Hezekiah, into that additional 15 years before his son Manasseh was born? Work it out there. Hezekiah slept with his fathers and Manasseh, his son, reigned in his stead. That's... Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign. When when Hezekiah died, Manasseh was 12 years old. Therefore, Hezekiah, the king, was three years into that extra 15 years that God gave him when his son Manasseh was born. Why am I making such a big deal of this? And the reason I'm making such a big deal of it is when you turn to the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 10, you'll see that Hezekiah begat Manasseh. Manasseh is in the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you want to trace the human ancestry, if you like, of of Jesus according to his humanity, you see Manasseh in that line. And as I've said to you, Jesus is a lamb slain before the foundation of the world. For sinners, he always was going to come into this world, even before God created this world. Even before God said, let there be light. Jesus is a lamb slain for sinners. A descendant of Manasseh, who was born, Manasseh himself being born three years into that extra 15 years that Hezekiah prayed for. We could turn to Acts chapter 2. And verse 23 as well, to see God's eternal decrees being worked out through human beings. Whether they're praying, crying up to him, crying to God for an extra 15 years of life, or as we what we're going to read now in Acts chapter 2, the counsel of the Lord will prevail. Whatever happens, whatever any of us will do. No one can thwart, frustrate, cancel out God's eternal decrees. I'm just trying to find Acts chapter 2. Okay. Acts chapter 2, verse 23. The Apostle Peter on the day of Pentecost, preaching to the Jewish crowd there, and he said, Him, being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, speaking about Jesus, You have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain, whom God have raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. But look at that again, the beginning of verse 23. Him, that's Jesus, being delivered by the determinate counsel, and one might say the eternal counsel of God, and foreknowledge of God, You have taken, 
You have crucified. You have slain. You did those things because you are nasty, wicked people. Sinful men. But God allowed it to happen according to his counsel and his foreknowledge. It happened. The counsel of the Lord will prevail. The God who is unchanging in his eternal decrees. You don't have to turn to it again, but coming back to Hezekiah, there's something very interesting for each one of us here. Can you see how powerful prayer is? The fact, let, let's forget for a moment the fact that Man, Manasseh was born three years into that 15 years. But the fact is, Hezekiah was sick unto death. And what did he do? He cried out to God. He cried out to God. And, and what that tells us is that God, or the Lord Jehovah, hears and he answers his people's prayers. But it's not a full stop there, is it? He hears and he answers people's prayers, his people's prayers, but he does so in accordance with his unchanging purpose and for his glory. His unchanging purpose in the case of Manasseh, God had a bigger plan there, Jesus coming into the world about 700 years later. But whatever you do, and that includes prayer, you pray and God will hear your prayer and he will answer your prayer if it's in accordance with his good pleasure, his uh, for his glory. And if you're not a Christian, then you must cry out to God as well. But what can you cry out to God for if you're not a believer? Uh, or rather, if you're not yet a Christian, what can you cry for? Dare you cry out for anything? What does God owe you? You get people who say that God owes me this, that and the other and they get angry with God because things aren't going right for them. But God owes us nothing at all. And if you're not a Christian in here, what you must do is cry out to God for mercy and for forgiveness of your sins. That's all you can do. Cry out to God for mercy like the tax collector in the temple that Jesus talked about in Luke's Gospel. The tax collector who beat his chest and cried out, God be merciful to me, a sinner. Blessed are you if you do that. And those words come from your heart. Because if you do that, if I've understood the scriptures correctly here, and and from my own experience, you cry out to God for mercy and for forgiveness and you really mean it. You've recognised what a holy God he is. The great I am. This God who I keep telling you about, the angels cover their faces and their feet in his presence. And you, you, you see yourself for what you are. A wretch, undone, unclean. And you cry out to God. You may well discover that Jehovah loved you and he chose you for salvation through faith in Jesus before the foundation of the world. You'll come to that realisation yourself if you are someone who cries out to God for mercy. God has loved me with an everlasting love. Finally, earlier on I admitted that I feel barely able to even scratch beneath the surface of what that name I am means and what it conveys about God who has created all things. We then went on to consider the Lord 
Jehovah or Yahweh. And the, the two are, are apparently, I'm no Hebrew scholar, but the two are very closely connected. Yahweh and I am, when you look at the Hebrew, which I've done, they are, it does, they look to be very closely connected. And we went on to consider that the Lord, who is from everlasting to everlasting, that he is unchanging in his love, unchanging in his purpose. Since those names I am and Yahweh apply to God, they apply to Jesus, don't they? In every sense, they apply to Jesus. Because he is the eternal son of God. He is, if you like, Jehovah Jesus. Just look at what Jesus said to the unbelieving Jews. I'm, I'm going to, if you want to leave Exodus, uh, I'm going to finish in John's Gospel now. In John chapter 8, look what Jesus said to the unbelieving Jews. John chapter 8, verses 56 through to 59. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Then said, then said the Jews unto him, Thou art not yet fifty years old. And hast thou seen Abraham? You can see that puzzled look on their faces, their unbelieving faces. Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Before Abraham was, I am. Then took they up stones to cast at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. Had Jesus just said to those unbelieving Jews, before Abraham was, I was, well, they could have looked at him and thought, well, hang on, let's see. Now, Abraham was in the world 2,000 years ago. Jesus has just said, before Abraham was, I was. Yeah, I think he's crazy. But Jesus did not say before Abraham was, I was. He said before Abraham was, I am. Now you have to be a bit careful because I haven't done it, but I'm sure if I bothered to look, I could find I am all over the place in the Bible. And we use it in our own language, don't we? I am this, I am that. But it's clearly different here. When you look at it in context, what Jesus said to those Jews before Abraham was, I am. And look at the response of those Jews there in verse 59. They took up stones to cast at him. That is because they would have believed that he has just committed blasphemy. They've already accused him in this passage of being a Samaritan and, and demon-possessed, if you please. And now they hear Jesus say, before Abraham was, I am, and they pick up stones to throw at him. Blasphemy! Who is he, a mere man, to say, I am? They were so enraged by what they considered to be his blasphemous claim. To think that there, that there was a time about 2,000 years ago when the eternal and the un, this unchanging I am, I think this is what's been getting, uh, I found so difficult when preparing this sermon. The same I am, Jehovah God. There was a time, I've been talking about him being eternal. And yet there was a time in history, in the fullness of time, when Jehovah Jesus came into this world as a servant or a slave. 
he made himself of no reputation. Born of a woman, submitted him to, to himself to the law. The law that he gave to Moses 1,500 years earlier. He subjected himself to that same law. And he was obedient even unto the death of the cross. Jehovah Jesus being nailed to a cross and lifted up to die for sinners. This is where I stop with my sermon. I can't really go beyond that except to tell it as it is there. Moses asked the great I am, Behold when I come unto the children of Israel and shall say unto them, The God of your fathers have sent me unto you and they shall say to me, What is his name? What shall I say unto them? That's what Moses, what shall I say unto them? May it please the Lord God, Jehovah God, Yahweh, the great I am, for each one of you to know him as your saviour and as your Lord, the one who loved you, the one who gave himself for you. In Jesus' name, amen.